Hello and welcome to the NYC Academic Solutions Podcast, where we empower parents with actionable insights, practical advice, and expert knowledge to help their students excel in education and beyond. I'm your host, Alexander Friedman, the owner of Brooklyn Math Tutors. In this podcast, we're committed to delivering valuable non-commercial content by engaging in conversations with various experts who will share their knowledge and experience to help NYC parents navigate the unique and complex world of education in the city. Today, we're delving into the topic of efficient study for the SAT with the careless error algorithm. We're thrilled to be joined by Josh Sun, a seasoned tutor and developer of this innovative algorithm who has helped over 500 students improve their test scores. That's a lot of students. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this algorithm, can you tell us a little bit why and when you started tutoring? Absolutely. I graduated college a million years ago and have been tutoring ever since. Is that precise enough for you? No, not at all. Not at all. I, um, I always like to hide my age. I feel like it's helpful from a business perspective. Um, no, I graduated college in 2000 and I have been tutoring pretty much ever since. So coming up on 23 years doing this. And while it has not always been exclusively test prep, it has like a lot of tutors will tell you become more about test prep as I've worked and developed a persona and a career in the industry. As for why I became a tutor, that's a whole other conversation. But I will say just very briefly, I knew I was interested in education and I was uh, very uneasy about the prospect of managing a classroom of kids. Yeah, managing a classroom of kids seems like one of the toughest, most unpleasant jobs you could possibly have. And I looked into New York City teaching fellows, I looked into Teach for America, and I could tell those were extraordinary organizations and that I would probably learn a lot but it would be extremely difficult. And I just temperamentally didn't really see myself as thriving there. So took a shot at tutoring and here we are 23 years later. Are you from New York? I am. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Gotcha. And did you, did you or did you not go to one of these specialized high schools that we may end up talking about? That is, that is a rumor that I can confirm. Yes. I went to a school that we both attended called Stuyvesant High School, which for those who are uninitiated, is interesting and screwed up in a lot of ways, but most relevant to this conversation has a single criteria for admission, which is one test on one day, and that is it. Um, it is a public school, so if you clear the bar on that one day, you're in and you get, I don't love this term, but you get a private school caliber education for free. If you don't clear the test, there is no backdoor. There is no, um, can I write a check? Can I talk someone into letting my child in? That doesn't exist, which I think is ultimately a really cool opportunity. And as a result, a lot of the kids who go to this high school do not come from great wealth because that is not generally an asset to getting in here. Of course, you can hire a wonderful tutor who can help you prepare for the <laughs> test and that those resources can be deployed. But I guess I would say, I think most of my friends that I went to school with, and I think this is still true today at that particular school, are you know first and second generation Americans who don't even grow up in households that speak English and certainly do not grow up in households that have tons, tons of money. So I think that was important and formative for me in terms of what I, what I wanted to do in education too. And okay, you mentioned Stuyvesant is one of these places where you take one test and it determines your future. And I guess the other test like that is the SAT. And that's a test that you initially developed this careless error algorithm for. 
Yes. To give you just a tiny bit of background there. I started tuning for the SAT in the early 2000s before it got its, uh, there was a, a big redesign in 2005 and then another big redesign in 2016. And now as we record this, we are about six, eight months away from uh, yet another big redesign. But the 2005 one was really important because I had collected a lot of data in the years just prior to that. And I had to figure out a way to, well, I had to start from scratch in 2005 when they when they redesigned it. And I've kind of framed it that way because the careless error algorithm uh, runs on data, like lots of algorithms. Um, and by that, I mean, I use historical student data on practice tests to gauge how difficult questions are. And based on those difficulties, I'm able to say when student X gets a question wrong, whether that student made a careless mistake on that particular question or whether that was a question they were always unlikely to get, which is what I call an expected miss. And all that became very, very important for me, you know, crafting that because it allowed me to save a lot of time and deliver a better product. Can you tell me a bit more about how much it saved you time? Because I remember when I started SAT tutoring, there wasn't really an algorithm to it. I kind of like sat with somebody and we worked through a bunch of questions, but it wasn't particularly systematic. And this sounds very systematic. Yeah. I So I, I found tutoring really frustrating in the early years, I have to say. And and I was doing all sorts of stuff. It wasn't just SAT prep. But as noted, that that is the trend in our society. That is the craze. That is where the work started to sort of generate more and more. And I realized after, you know, applying the approach you just outlined, namely going through mistakes one by one with students, that I was finding myself frustrated because I wasn't getting through very much, right? An SAT in its current construction has about 150 questions. If a student is to miss 20, 30, 40 plus questions, there's just no chance of discussing those in any kind of real way within an hour or even a 90 minute session. So what I would do and what I would, why I found it so frustrating is I would get through a couple, I would feel like we were just kind of getting into something useful and time would be up. And there was, that not only was frustrating to me, but I'm sure it meant that I was delivering a less than extraordinary product. You know, teaching a kid how to solve three different questions in an hour, no matter how deep you're going, is just not a great use of anyone's time. And not scalable. Those three questions are, uh, unless they somehow magically capture every nuance to the test, even if the kid does master those three questions, it's not going to take them very far beyond that that hour that you spend with them. So the careless error algorithm, and it took a while to develop, was, was sort of a way to say, where are we smartest in terms of spending our limited time together, right? So if a kid misses 50 questions, we're not going to just look at the first 10 questions of those. We're going to look at a very precise sort of auto-generated list custom to that kid that gives us the roadmap that allows us us to cover more ground and also, you know, plant real learning seeds, teach them stuff that I that I feel like they can learn and that I feel like I can teach. So the effective result was, let's say you have like 12 weeks or six weeks or of tutoring with somebody. Uh, would you say that the result was that in that time, you would be significantly more effective as to how much their score would increase because you're focusing on questions they actually can consistently prove on? Yes. And it would increase buy-in on the part of the kids because we'd be looking at questions they could actually fix instead of listening to me talk and explain the hardest math questions on the test. And and I probably should have started with the most fundamental sort of idiosyncrasy to the test, I think, is all of the questions are weighted equally, which no matter how many times you tell a student or a parent that, it runs so counter to how we move about the world that the easiest task and the hardest task are weighted equally. And as a result, it doesn't really serve you to spend meaningful extra time on the hardest question if you're not actually first nailing the easy because they're all weighted equally. 
it seems like the only people this would not be useful for are the ones that get all the easy and medium questions right and the ones that are going from like, well, I have like a 750 in the math and I want to get an 800. And maybe then then you just don't care about it's fun. it. Yeah, it's funny you frame it that way because I, I, I am interested in those kids on the margin. I mean, you could argue it's it's of less value to the kids in the other extreme as well who are missing tons and tons of questions and we populate a list that says these 50 questions are all careless. Fortunately, the algorithm is a little smarter than that. If you, you miss a ton of questions, it does sort of normalize itself to the student, um, meaning a student who's targeting an 11 or 1200, we are still going to find the 10 to 15 to 20 most careless mistakes and ranked accordingly for them. And a kid who's targeting a 1500, 1550, 1600, those crazy difficult questions that he or she has missed are still going to show up as careless errors because they're getting so many other tricky questions right. That's interesting. That's more of like a, an interpersonal sort of conversation to how do you tell a kid that they've made a careless mistake in a way that motivates them? But that's, that's a whole other conversation. It's a whole other conversation. So, like, what changes did you see in like your effectiveness from before developing this to like you know to when you rolled this out? I mean, orders of magnitude. I, I was I was able to get two hundred point gains for students, whereas previously it was you know fifty to eighty points. Um, we were just covering so much more ground, and you know, and it's the algorithm is in the sense that as this as I work with the student more and more, and we learn the kid more and more, we get even more precise with what he or she needs to work on. Hopefully, some of those careless errors stop because I'm doing my job and we I teach useful you know remediation skills, and we we no longer confuse rise over run with run over rise. But if it doesn't, that's also useful intel for me. If I'm addressing these quote-unquote low-hanging fruit questions and we're not seeing score gains, that means there's something wrong with my technique. So it's been useful in that respect as well. Can you share a story of like someone who's had like really good results with this? I mean, whatever whatever parts you can share, of course, no no identifying details. Yeah. How do we protect the anonymity of someone who, who is already fully anonymous? I don't know. Maybe we could just call the student, you know, Steve for, for simplicity. So I think Steve's intake assessment had him at about a 10 50. This is not that long ago. This is two, three months ago, um, which would put us in, in early 2023. And he only was answering about half of the questions. And that was a time thing in part. And that was a test structure familiarity challenge. Um, and it was an anxiety challenge. And it was to some extent a content challenge, but not not really in the sense that, of course, it depends a, a bit on what you've been taught up to your you know 11th or 12th grade year. For the most part, all of the content that you need has passed before you by the time you sit down and take the SAT with a few small exceptions in the math perhaps, but not not really for most students. Certainly most sort of high achieving students have, have encountered enough algebra and geometry. They should be able to handle the, the core content. Anyway, Steve um, started uh, in that 1100 range and the first to practice as he took, he went down. And we, I say we, me, Steve and Steve's parents were all quite concerned. Had I actually made him a less skilled test taker in the, in the one session we'd had, I refused to believe that I was a negative influence on a student. But we really leaned into the careless error algorithm and and not just that, I spent a lot of time thinking about and working with him in ways to ensure that he stayed confident. As we all know, testing has as much to do with your mindset as it has to do with your actual skills, particularly when it comes to time testing, which which of course is what the SAT is. And he ended up getting a 1530 in the end. He went up over 400 points. Oh my God, that's insane. And it was, honestly, it was gratifying primarily because he had no, he had never succeeded on that level before in anything. He was not an athlete. He was not a musician. He was not whatever other pogo, you know, whatever other skill you want to insert. I Or if he was, I, I knew nothing of his sort of mastery of anything. And it was exciting also in the sense that it was not linear by any means. There'd be a big jump and then they would sort of slide backwards. And I mean, it was a general sort of upward trajectory, but clearly that's not an available path for every student. But he worked really, really hard. He was churning out of practice 
practice test a week, which is a huge drag, but he was doing it. And he found it much ultimately more enjoyable than school, which is kind of the opposite for most students who find testing more confusing, more challenging in a lot of ways and, and less satisfying. But again, I think the engine for a lot of that, less about our rapport, though that was part of it. I think it was really just his work ethic and not wasting time on the toughest questions until it was really time for him to work on those. It sounds like the way you structured things, he was getting very quick positive reinforcement Yes, in, in his test scores versus like, okay, I worked on all this stuff and I went up by like, I got one more question right after two weeks of studying. Yeah. And, and I... I can even put a finer point on that and say, in my experience as someone who's done a lot of test prep tutoring over the years, probably the single worst thing that can happen in a tutoring session is for a tutor to spend an extended period of time on a difficult question and have the students still not understand. And that happens quite a bit. And that I think is born out of, in many cases, a lack of sort of intuition or interpersonal connection, right? If you don't get that your student is drifting or confused, you can continue to take him or her on a pointless journey. But also, I think if you don't have a good system, there's a real chance that even if you're, you are really savvy, you'll think he surely he's getting this or she's getting this and they just aren't, which of course gets into how much feedback you can generate in a tutoring session, which in my mind, there, there is no, the, the more, the better. The more you're asking your student to explain things and the more you're checking in to make sure him or he or, or she is with you, the better. So, but yeah, I mean, I just, just to, to sort of sum all that up, I, at the root of this whole sort of tech development for me has been more efficient tutoring and setting these kids up for more frequent successes, right? They're going to understand these careless errors better than they are the harder questions that they've missed. Yeah, I think uh, because it's there's, there's no real bar to be a tutor. Basically, anyone can say, hey, I'm a tutor. Like if you're moderately good at math or science, you can say, I'm tutoring. And if you have friends that need a tutor or you, fi you find a way to do it, you you can sit with somebody. But one of the things I found with tutors who are new or tutors who are very smart and and not as, as you mentioned, like interpersonally savvy is like they'll have fun with difficult questions. Right. And they don't really see that like the students aren't having fun and, and it doesn't really help them that much because the tutor who's great at the SAT is probably not somebody who struggled at it. It's probably not somebody who really had a lot of challenges at these levels. And so they don't really understand like, well, why, why don't we do the most fun, most challenging problems that like are totally brain racking? Yeah, I would echo that. And, I, and just more broadly, ego is a tricky thing in a tutoring session, right? There are a lot of tutors who who are very well-intentioned, who do not realize, and I count myself as, as one of these, and I've worked really hard to, to sort of mitigate this over the years, not just enjoying the sound of one's own voice, but just what you said, the the game, the puzzle, the, the unraveling of a thorny question can be really satisfying for a tutor and totally unproductive for the student. Absolutely. So for people who, I guess, maybe can't afford an expensive tutor that uses a specialized algorithm, or perhaps they're not in New York and you know, they don't have access to you, although you do tutor online, right? Yeah. How might people sort of DIY the system, maybe not as effectively as you, but how could you apply sort of the fundamentals of the Carol's error algorithm to your own tutoring sessions? Like how would you sure. make your own tutoring sessions more effective? Yeah. So it's, it, it is a, a little tricky for a couple of reasons. First of all, the College Board does not produce the, does not share the relevant data that would make this really easy to do, right? The College Board, the, the maker of the SAT could very easily say, we've given this question to thousands and thousands of students, and this is exactly how many got it right or wrong, and this is what they picked. And so your answer is wrong for this reason, and this is what you should work on. And we think this might have been careless. The College Board could do that quite easily. It is also the case that the College Board does not, I think, do a particularly good job of categorizing questions. 
Anyone who's taken an SAT recently and seen a score report will see skills on that score report that include things like heart of algebra or passport to math. And they will think, I don't really know what exactly (laughs) I have done wrong that I've gotten a passport to math question wrong, which unfortunately for for the, you know, individual out there leads you to a couple different possibilities. Either you, the student or you, the parent goes through questions and says, I think this is actually a triangle question, or I think this is a comma question, which, which an individual can do, but is not particularly time effective. So all of these are are challenges to efficient self-study. I think the simplest thing a student can do is remind him or herself as often as possible that all the questions are weighted equally, which, as I said, even though that may seem like a fairly straightforward concept, is something that most students and parents lose sight of, right? Getting a difficult question right will invariably feel better and it will be worth exactly the same as getting an easy question. Ah. In the math in the math sections, figuring out which questions are supposed to be easy or hard is actually a little bit easier than in the other two sections because for the most part the math sections are arranged from easy to hard. So if you are someone who's not getting the first third of a math section right consistently, you should not be focused on the final the middle third or the final third. Your efforts should absolutely be targeted to the first really, you know, 7 or 8 out of 20 or 13 out of 38 because if you can't get those right it doesn't really matter how you fare on the harder ones like you're 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 losing the the whatever points you're getting getting a hard question are offset by questions your points you're losing by missing an easy one reading and grammar are trickier to, to evaluate but i i do think in a way thinking about analyzing as closely as possible mistakes you know for for a motivated student who does not have a tutor um, there are plenty of free resources available some from the college board and some from countless uh, uh, other resources Khan academy and affiliate of the of the college board has wonderful tools available and starting to say, hey, it does seem like I'm missing comma questions. It's time for me to really focus on that. Also figuring out what which topics, not from the college board for all the reasons we just talked about, from other organizations, figuring out which topics dominate the sections can help you figure out, well, I don't really need to spend a lot of time on something like trigonometry for the one or two questions that will show up. I really do need to spend time on geometry for the 10 or 15 questions I'll need there. But again, to me, the, the root of all of this is reminding oneself that it does not pay to go into the hard stuff until you've nailed the easy stuff. It's very interesting because everybody knows theoretically that the questions are weighed the same, but you're so right that it doesn't feel as satisfying to work on like question two when you missed it. You want to be like, oh, look at this like combinatorics problem. Although I think those are gone now. Or like, look at this like function problem. This is so interesting and elegant and challenging. You sit there. And so I guess it seems simple, but in practice, I don't I don't think people do this. They don't really like work on the fundamentals enough. And so of course, you know, yeah, you, you, you may get some of the harder questions wrong sometimes, but you know, do better by by really nailing the first part of these sections. Absolutely. Yeah. What other resources or what specific resources would you recommend for people who do self-study? Sure. Far and away, the resource I use the, the most is called IXL. It's the letter I, the letter X, and the letter L. It's an online learning platform that is not sort of pegged to the SAT in any way, but it's predominantly math and language arts skills broken down by grade and by topic. And it's it's absolutely essential to the work I do. And what I mean by that is I will, through all of the means we've discussed, spend a lot of time looking at my own internal data to figure out what key skills a student is struggling with. And then in addition to working through practice tests, I will have them do independent content review in the, with this tool, IXL, which I 
can monitor both in the time they're spending, the days they're working on it, the, the progress they're making through IXL's analytics tab, which I mention them because I have lots of friends who are in the content development world. And I, I always end up scratching my head when there's such amazing tools out there. Um, and this is a particularly amazing tool. I would discourage anyone who's thinking about developing this product uh, from developing this product before having looked at this product. So that's really, really useful for me. Math Warehouse is another tool I like to use. I have discovered something that I think is probably obvious to most people who are under the age of 25 that video-based instruction is generally more effective than textbook-based learning. I guess effect, it depends how you measure efficacy, but sending a student 26 problems and their you know methodical written solutions tends to be worth a lot less than sending them one sort of well-built video. And at this point in my life, I am not recording those videos so much as I am finding them and sharing them with students. Again, I do feel like I have something to contribute to the to the conversation about how best to solve certain questions, but there's quite a bit out there um, for free. Uh, again, for motivated students with or without tutors, with or without resources to go find these instructional videos um, and use IXL to sort of find and target and remediate areas of content weakness. That is so interesting because I've, I've definitely used IXL, but I think you're the first person that suggested using IXL when prepping for the for the SAT. And, and that is so, it makes so much sense because there's the limited number of SAT questions out there. And if yep. you figure out like, okay, it's this specific skill. A lot of these skills aren't SAT specific. Like, okay, if you just have problems with, you know, exponents, like, yeah, you could try to find a bunch of exponent SAT questions, but, or you can go to IXL and be like, hey, give me 50 exponent problems so I can do these in my sleep. Yeah. IXL also, I should say, has an assessment where you can just sort of see an array of miscellaneous questions and it will diagnose you. So I've wondered on a few occasions if, if my days are numbered as a you know, diagnoser, right? When there's this incredible tool out there that does it dynamically for kids, which is part of the reason why I lean on the tool because it, it saves all of us a lot of trouble. And I can tack that onto my my unique knowledge of tests and say, hey, this is this is the way the SAT is going to frame this thing, right? So it's not just out describe the rule for semicolons. It's like here's here's a, a certain kind of SAT semicolon question I need you to answer. How can parents support their kids during like the the test prep process? So a lot of ways. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is helping that child carve out a quiet, relatively distraction-free, you know, place to work. I have done a lot of tutoring in households that are extremely chaotic. Um, I've gone to people's homes and been horrified that a, you know, a TV blares in the background as we try desperately to learn. That does not seem like something that would need to get reminded to parents. That is limiting distraction. But I think in this era that we live in, particularly with the ubiquity of phones and social media, uh, distractions are everywhere. I do believe that it was easier to study 10 or 15 years ago than it is today. Um, that there were fewer, particularly pre-cell phones, that there, there were fewer means of getting pulled away from the thing you were doing. Which is not to say we did not struggle with concentration when we were students, or, or I am still a student. Not to say that I don't still struggle with concentration, but I think it's undeniable that students today have it a little bit tougher in that regard. So simplifying the learning environment, whether it's getting them out of their room. So for a lot of kids, that's a particularly distracting place to work. In some cases, out of the apartment, if they can meet somewhere like a library or somewhere like mom or dad's office or some or somewhere that is, or at the tutor's house, but not in the dining room with the cat on the lap and the, the radio on or and the iPad, you know. So to, to me, that's that, that that's the easy part. Should be the easy part. 
Well, if we're talking about careless errors, right? That's probably like the careless error of study, right? It's just distractions. Um, yeah, I do think it's it's much harder to focus on stuff now than it used to be. You know, back back in our day, right? In, in the was like the '90s, it was music. People would listen to music when they were studying, and I would always be confused. I'm like, well, how how do you pay attention while you're like listening to whatever lyrics? And I didn't find that the people who listened to music did better. I often found that those people were not as effective. But they're like, well, but I, I need this to study. I'm like, I I, I don't think so. So yeah, if if Parents can like help students create boundaries of time. I, I see that can be very useful because it's something that's very hard to do. Like it's hard for me to do as an adult, and it's way way hard to do it as like a fifteen year old. Yeah, I mean, executive functioning is a sort of buzzword in education today, although it's certainly not a new concept. But I do think parents have what parents may lack in terms of an ability to support a typical high school student on the content front, they should be able to offer some some help organizationally. Most parents, hey, here, let, let's talk about what's due this week. I'm not, I, the parent, I'm not going to insist on sitting with you while you do your homework. That is, a, is you know, likely to be an enormous fail for everyone involved. But I am going to help you figure out what's most important and offer you some strategies in terms of where, where if I, the parent, were you the teen, here's where I would begin sort of tackling this mountain of work that you have in front of you. Especially if there's something like a practice essay that needs to get done, you know, on top of a heavy course load, which for a lot of kids is a huge, huge challenge. And I have, I have to say, I, I do think a lot of t- a lot of test prep tutoring is maybe overly reliant on specifically churning out practice tests. But the opposite of that is probably more damaging, right? A student who has not done sufficient simulations of the real thing will not thrive on test day. And that that includes simulating it properly, right? Like not just doing a practice test, but doing it under real test conditions, um, which, as we said, does, does not involve a phone, does not involve a TV, really does not involve music. And probably, and ideally does not involve sitting in your bedroom trying to buy your stuff. That is not how you're going to take the real thing. Yeah, I mean, you may as well like, uh, I mean, th- there are services out there that are like, what are they called? Like test prep simulation I don't, I don't i don't remember the specifics but like bespoke education does this you can go there and pay and take a test and i at first i thought it was kind of ridiculous why would you pay to do this but now but then later i was like you know it doesn't make sense to see what it would be like not in exactly the same condition but in a similar condition right it's not at home you don't have your phone you have to start at a certain time you have to finish at a certain time this time pressure i mean there may not be like real stress in the sense that the test doesn't matter but it's much closer than anything else you could you could come up with one easy thing that i recommend all parents of students preparing for an SAT or an ACT or, or countless other tests is, uh, and I'm happy to share these these links with you using sort of pre-recorded YouTube proctor videos, right? So that is not the same as leaving your home and going to a strange environment to take a actual practice test. That is better. But second to that is having a, you know, someone on a laptop in front of you saying you have 65 minutes, go. And now you have two minutes. Now you have a 10 minute break, which unfortunately a lot of kids without that sort of, those sorts of guardrails will use their phone to time themselves. And that is of course asking to be distracted and that will cut into the value of of the practice test. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty finicky about, I do not want, um, I, I will often offer to the parents would you like to proctor this for your son or daughter, which they typically will decline? But sometimes they they will choose to spend that time monitoring their son or daughter. But again, these YouTube videos that are totally free are a really easy way to kind of simulate having someone at the front of the room telling you how to behave. And can this algorithm be applied to other tests like the ACT or the SHSAT, which we talked about in the beginning of this podcast? A- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the three biggest sort of arenas that I lean on it for are the SAT, the ACT, and the, the specialized high school admission test, which is the test that I took to get into STI and that a lot of uh, New York City public and private school kids are interested in because, well, for all the reasons we touched on earlier. But I, I will say that my algorithm 
really runs on data. So the only way I can deploy this effectively is having taught a test for an, ex an extended period of time. So I've thought a lot about expanding to things like the MCAT or the GMAT, which are exciting sort of frontiers and arenas that I think are in need of some some test prep innovation. But it's a little bit tricky because to, as I said, at, at present to sort of really sharpen the tool, I would need to run a large number of students through a set number of exams, which takes time. But I'm happy to say the SAT, ACT, and SHSAT are three tests that I've kind of gotten to that juncture with, and I can use them in really cool, effective ways. And I have two more questions about like the nitty gritty details here. How does this help with time management? Because that's one of the problems that people have. Everyone talks about time management on the on the SAT. There, there's a lot to say about that, but the the short answer I'll I'll give you is the analysis I do splits all mistakes into two categories. There's a careless error, and then there's an expected miss. For the reasons we touched on earlier, a careless error I really believe, and the numbers do bear this out. A careless error is more fixable more quickly than an expected miss. As we mentioned earlier as well, all these questions are weighted equally. So understanding, you know, you hate to say that any question is beyond a student's capabilities, but relatively speaking, certain questions are. There, There is no denying that certain questions on the test are more gettable for some students than other questions are for those same students, which is to say devoting time independently and within the scope of an actual ongoing exam to the most sort of achievable tasks instantly saves time and instantly builds confidence. As, as noted, I I don't think there's anything worse a tutor can do than leave a student feeling more confused than he or she felt when they sat down. And some of these really thorny questions on whether it's the SAT or the ACT or the SHSAT or any other exam are that hard. And it's it's not really a matter of a tutor being winning and dynamic and explaining it in, in a great way. Certain questions just don't lend themselves to the sort of pithy conversations. So whether you're working with the tutor or you're working independently, really trying to keep an eye on the clock as much as possible and understand that your time both in the preparation and in the exam is extremely precious. And anything you can do to streamline that will get you a better score. All right, less technical question. This this one is something that I've, I've personally been curious about because I've only tutored the math section because that, that makes sense to me. And, you know, there's a specific type of questions and you can teach specific skills. But do you have any techniques on how to improve the like reading comprehension sections of the SATs? Because those seem so amorphous to me. Like, how do you teach someone to read better? Yeah, so, so I'll talk about just briefly about the SAT in its current form. As I said, in, in the spring of 2024, the SAT is about to get another revamp. So if somehow you're listening to this in that period, some of the things I'm about to say may no longer apply. But here, here's what I will say. As of right now, as of 2023, first section on the SAT, the reading section contains five reading passages. And one of them is described as a double passage. And what I mean by that is it is two 500 to 1,000 word passages. Um, and there are questions on the first passage. And then there are questions on the second passage. And then there are questions related relating the two passages. I have found, and I think most viewers would agree, that the double passage, despite being worth exactly the same as the other four passages, is far tougher. Understanding how the two passages connect in particular is really, really challenging. So in terms of SAT reading strategies, I often tell people to push that to the final passage, whether it's sequenced that way or not, because I would rather them run out of time without having tackled the hardest thing and having gotten to all of the more gettable questions than I would, you know, starting with something really unpleasant and being both frustrated and short on time as a result. So resequencing is a, is a shorter way of saying that. And, and again, I can't stress enough reminding oneself throughout 
that it is better to give up on a question a little bit too soon than to fight with one a little too long. That is such like counterintuitive advice because it's not really how you do things in life and not how we think about what success looks like. But these tests are very artificial constructs. And so I guess you have to have artificial and unintuitive approaches to them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, it's funny you, you framed it that way because that is exactly what I say to my students. What I'm about to tell you is not something I would urge you to apply to your life outside this exam. Please do not encounter a tough challenge in life and say, I'll just try the next thing. <laughs> with, with few exceptions, that is not going to be a winning strategy for being in the world, I don't think. But on the SAT, it's, it's just how you got to operate. The, again, if the questions were weighted differently, it would be a completely different exa- experience exam. But as of now, they're all weighted equally. So you got to really sort of let that lead the way in the preparation. Yeah, just give up after it didn't work out immediately is just not the motto of like the hardworking, high-achieving students. Yeah, I mean, the, the, just the heavy inference questions, just touching on the, the reading comprehension, I think what makes that section so thorny for so many students largely are the questions that ask you to sort of get in the mind of the author, which is really tough to do, particularly under pressure, particularly in a you know limited amount of time. And saying periodically over the test, I don't think I'm going to be able to get in the mind of the author quickly. So... I'm picking B and I'm moving on can actually not just not not just help your score long term, but also spare you the frustration and the fatigue of fighting with something that was not likely to be successful. All right. Last question. In your experience, what sets apart students who achieve significant score improvements from those who struggle? First thing I say to anyone who reaches out to me about tutoring is the secret. The dirty secret, if you will, of independent study and or test prep, well, I should say the dirty secret of tutoring is far more predictive of outcome than the tutor skills or even the rapport of the student and the tutor is what happens in between the tutoring sessions, which is to say a wonderful tutor who creates a wonderful environment for a student who is liked and likes the student and does not get that student to do meaningful amount of work in between session one and session two is wasting everyone's time. And that is not to say the tutor skills themselves aren't important, nor is it to say that there aren't useful strategies or techniques to mastering this test and any number of other tests, so much as a really good tutor will get a kid to do meaningful amounts of work in between sessions. And that is something that a motivated student without a tutor can generate on his or her own. If you are willing to put in the time and really think about, be honest with your self-diagnosis and, and take a meaningful number of practice tests, you can absolutely achieve the same results that you would have with a fantastic, expensive tutor. But for a lot of kids, it's harder because um, knowing where to look and knowing how to motivate oneself is a rare skill. Yeah, and something that's not often taught. So if people do want a fantastic and organized tutor that does know how to do this, where do they find you? Uh, they can get me at my email, which is joshsone at gmail.com. And I'll, I'll share with you some additional contact information for me. But I guess I would just reiterate the perception out there that the high scorers are the kids with the expensive tutors, I think, I think is, a, is a bit of a myth that is perpetuated by many of those expensive tutors themselves who very much want you to believe that you cannot do it without them. And, and I really believe you can. It's harder in some ways, but um, by no means is hiring a tutor the only path to an excellent score or an excellent outcome. Yep. Agreed 100%. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate your time and hope you found our discussion insightful and valuable. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's topic, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You'll find our email address in the show notes. We also welcome any suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover as our goal is to provide you with the most useful and relevant information possible. If you enjoyed this episode and believe this information could benefit others, please consider sharing it with friends, family, or colleagues. Your support helps us reach more people and make a positive impact on their educational journey. 
Additionally, leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform helps others discover our podcast and allows us to continue to bring you valuable content. Once again, thank you for joining us and we look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Take care and see you soon.